Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. On this episode, Tim, it's Tim, right? Yes. Is going to talk about Isaiah 50. Yes. And he'll give us a little bit more of a preview later in our introduction here. Mm-hmm. A couple of announcements that we want to remind our lovely listeners of. They are lovely. We love our listeners. Um, we have a couple things in the bookstore you might want to be mindful of. We have new t-shirts, and we Googled this to make sure we were saying it the culturally correct way, and crewnecks. We have t-shirts and crewnecks with new Thinklings designs in the bookstore. They are awesome. You should buy them all. Should buy. You should come in and buy like 10 of them. There we go. One for you, and then nine of your friends and family members. Christmas right. presents. That's if right. you all do that, you know, there won't be enough for all of you, so like you want to get there quickly. because then they can scalp them at a higher price. Yeah, friends. we would be a huge fan of that. We'll place another order. Yeah. I'm really excited <laughs> oh about word. the crew necks. This is the type of year. It's crew neck time. Um, number two, you know what? We should just like pick us. Well, we don't really have a lot of home sporting events. that will be outdoors, but it's like, we should pick a sporting event and tell everyone to wear their Thinklings crew necks. Well, oh, as we record this, tomorrow's casual day. It is, but I don't think anyone will be able to. I totally forgot about that. Because we're recording so this and it's going to be. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Do you know what else today is right now as we're recording this? Columbus Day. My dad's birthday. Happy birthday, birthday. Dad. Indigenous People's Day. Whatever. That's the politically correct way. All right, let's keep going. uh, And then also, just a reminder that next semester, we're going to do a series on The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And you might want to buy that and read it before you listen to the series. That will be helpful for you. And uh, where's the best place to get a book in Ankeny? Hmm. Probably the Faith Bookstore. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you're buying books anywhere else, you're mm-hmm. just a barbarian. We're so. going to put it on sale in November. So you could have it early if you want to stay. Hey, I want that November sale. They'll be like, okay. And then you could love the book even more. Oh, brother. Ah, uh, the fifth love is your love oh, for the Faith Bookstore. Oh. <laughs> With that, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. You couldn't even make it through it. <laughs> we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. So I want to clarify a couple of things. I've been working through Worthy, Elise Fitzpatrick, and Eric Schumacher are the authors. I talked about Genesis 3.16, and one of the points I left out, um, and so I want to just kind of talk about it here. It states in Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. That is the ESV translation. I talked about how the desire there is like an authority or subordination type of desire. Uh, and the argument for that comes from Genesis 4.7, the context of Genesis 3.17. There's one additional argument, and I, I've stayed away from this one because it's kind of like a Hebrew argument, but the verse is literally written as, as a chiasm. I know that's a big fancy word, but it's not that complicated. It's like, the first point corresponds to the last point, and the two middle points also correspond. So the verse literally reads in the Hebrew, your desire, oh, let me get my spot, nope, back up, and to your husband is your desire, but he will rule over you. Okay, so the first prepositional phrase, to your husband, corresponds to over you at the end. 
And that means the two middle points correspond. Your desire corresponds to he will rule. So the, the reason this is important is because the desire is directly, cor directly correlates to the rule. Uh, so that's another argument for Genesis 3.16. And I think that English readers can kind of grasp that. The issue is your English translation it always puts the verb first, so it, it's hard to see it in the English translation. So I wanted to clarify that point. And then second thing I wanted to clarify, I went through that whole thing um, in Worthy. They talked about his uh, ecclesiology and how, how he asks for women's advice, and he's really brought women into, their, into the uh, conversation. Uh, Eric... Uh, makes an intentional effort to seek out and invite the feedback of women, and he makes an intentional effort to speak to women in his preaching and teaching, and how, uh, and I never really closed the loop on that. I was listening to our recording, and I never really finished it. The point that I'm trying to establish is his, his uh, uh, philosophy, his uh, ministry philosophy uh, um, has been directly impacted by his egalitarianism, uh, so um, this is why within broader evangelicalism, even Jen Wilkin, Elise Fitzpatrick, all of these women, that they're like, hey, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be able to talk and fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. But actually the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, articulates the primary person that the pastor should be focusing his ministry on is the men. And the reason for that is because the men are supposed to be teaching their wives. So... Um, in First First Corinthians fourteen uh, thirty four, this is a really controversial passage, and of course, in Worthy, they do address it on page two hundred three. They write, "Yes, Paul also writes that the women should keep silent in the churches." A passage that, if not read in context, has the potential to cause much confusion. We know that Paul cannot mean that women should never speak in church because he's already acknowledged that women are free to pray and prophesy publicly as long as they do not dishonor those in authority by the way they dress. So they go through and they basically say, you know, it's not a, a, a complete statement of, hey, you know, they're not allowed to say anything. And I would agree with that. I think they're correct. But what is it? What is it that's different? What is he trying to stay here in 1 Corinthians 14? Now, I'm not going to take the time to go through their entire reading, but they really deal very, very poorly in the passage. And I think that they deal very poorly in the passage because <laughs> the passage still argues against their view. So 1 Corinthians 14 get to it here. So I want to put it in a little more context. I'm going to start in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Now those are two important components that even in Paul's day, the women were to submit. To whom? I don't know. Who are they supposed to submit to? And then furthermore, what is the reference to the law? Uh, because in uh, Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher, their Christic hermeneutic, they really seek to disassociate the New Testament model from the Old Testament, from the law. Uh, but here, Paul is alluding to the law in support of the New Testament um, relationship between the genders. Now, verse 35, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, so do you realize who are they supposed to 
be in submission to? Their husbands. And who's supposed to teach them? Their husbands. And so from an ecclesiology, uh, New Testament ecclesiology, whom should a pastor focus his attention uh, on discipling? The men. And then when he has a problem like with a wife in the church or whatever, okay, then the the pastor, you know, you like go to the man and say, hey, you know, your wife, blah, 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 whatever, okay? And then what does he need to do? He needs to then disciple his wife. He needs to guide and direct her, okay? Now you realize most guys don't want that. (laughs) This isn't just, you know, me beating up on women or whatever, all right? Most of the men are going to be like, I don't want to talk to her, Pastor. You talk to her, you know? I don't want to tick her off. I'm the one that has to live with her. (laughs) So this is a bigger issue than just like the the relationships, even in our complementarian, people who believe in complementarianism, they often don't do this. They don't like this. They hate this uh, because a lot of times a guy, he just wants to live at peace with his wife. And the last thing that's going to bring peace in his home is him having to, or trying to, or speaking to her about whatever the issue might be. So anyway, just this whole conversation is much bigger than, um, than this, uh, egalitarianism, complementarianism, the re- the relationships between the genders, it affects ecclesiology and uh, church philosophy, your philosophy of ministry. So uh, that's worthy, and I think I might be done with this book. I blasted through a whole pile of it. They have they talk about like worship, woman in worship, and uh, they talk about this Old Testament model of worship. I mean, their whole theology of worship needs developed like in a whole pile more. They go to how, hey, look, women, they're dancing and they're exuberant and emotional and they're worship. Yeah. And they're like, look at how uh, Miriam's leading the woman in worship. I'm like, yeah, you know who she's not leading in worship? The men. Guess who's not dancing after they cross the Red Sea? The guys. Because dancing was gendered and only the ladies danced. And guys typically never danced. And so they're, they're diving into something that they don't have a clue what's really going on with, with the whole worship thing and the dance. So anyway, um, Worthy, Elise Fitzpatrick and Eric Schumacher, I might be done with it. Uh, I haven't finished it completely. Um, we are not selling it in the Faith Bookstore, but if you, as a result of this podcast, would like to pick up a copy, let me know. I'll order a copy for you. I've actually had a couple of people request it, and um, I just order it in for them, but uh, I do believe there's a major errors in this book. Okay, uh, I'm going to just share a quote for my books and business. This uh, Last week, I was uh, I had begun another Bible study talk in another church in Nebraska. This time it's over Zoom. So I was Zooming to a Nebraska church on a Sunday night. We're doing a three-week series on Bible study. And there's a quote that I use in my talk on Bible study that I thought would be nourishing and helpful for you. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a book. Well, it's sort of a book. It's a book of essays called God in the Dock. And it's lots of essays. We're all shaking our head around the table. Me and Charlie have spent lots of time in the book. I think, Tim, have you read God in the Dock bits of it? I've read bits of it. Yeah, it's uh-huh. it's really good. It's one of those you can pick up an essay here or there or whatever. And in it, um, he makes this quote, or he gives this quote about devotional books that's so good. Part of my talk on Bible study is that when I tried to really learn the Bible, when I really wanted to draw close to God, I would dive into Bible study, and it just didn't really ever work. And then one time, 
I had this experience where I was really trying to technically understand, like in a technical way, the passage for a Sunday school presentation and everything I'd always pursued in my devotion time that never happened suddenly happened. And it dawned on me that trying to understand the text clearly is the avenue through which you can have a close walk with God. So Lewis had this quote and it really mirrored what I experienced. And so there's one part I'll make a joke about, but in God, the doc, he says this, he says, for my own part, I tend to find that the doctrinal books are often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect the same experience may await others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that their heart would sing unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. Now, move, remove the pipe, okay? But his point is, when he would sit down and try to work through a tough bit of theology, his soul would be nourished before the Lord, and he was edified in his walk with God. And it was the same experience I've had. So anyways, reader or listener, uh, if you're not sure what to do for your devotions, don't don't, don't, uh, swear off technical books or theology books or stuff that's a little tougher. Uh, That can be really good fuel for the walk with God that you're trying to attain to. You know... I think that when Lewis says pipe, he's referring to a musical instrument. He's not re- referring to the um, con- uh, consuming of, you know, like a halfling's weed or anything like that. It's a good thing that we don't believe in authorial intent. So was, then we can yeah. You beat me to it. You beat me to it, Tim. That's where I was going. Anyway, uh, so the day we're recording this, which is the 10th of October, uh, I don't really have a book. I mean, so I do. I've got lots of books. That I'm gliding through and thinking through. Are um, you formulating a bibliography? Yes, I am. 40 sources at this point. I was talking to another doctor of ministry student at, uh, he's a doctor of ministry student at Bob Jones. And uh, I was I was joking around last night saying, you know, I'm praying and hoping that my bibliography will be under 200 sources. Um, which, you know, who knows? But so uh, all that to say is I'm working on Today, this is more business than book, but I'm working on my uh, project proposal for my Doctor of Ministry degree, developing a method of New Testament word studies for students at Faith Baptist Bible College. That is the official title of the um, of the proposal. So that's pretty much what I've been working on. And uh, interested to think through the theological foundations of why word studies are important. And there are actually places in the New Testament where an author makes a specific point on a very specific word. For example, Galatians 3.16, talking about the seed, he actually makes an argument based on its plurality or actually its lack of being plural. It's like, it's not seeds, plural, it's seed. And uh, so there is direct biblical evidence to the importance of the words that were chosen. And then theologically, this all falls under our bibliology, which would include our inspiration views, uh, but then it gets into hermeneutics. It's a, it, so the, the class of project that I'm working on is developing a hermeneutical method. So what is the method you would employ to arrive at a definition of a word when you're studying the New Testament? And I'll give you a little bit of a clue right now. It's not grabbing a Webster's Dictionary and looking up the English translation, um, which I said that to a group of students previously, and I got some confused looks like, why wouldn't I do that? 
uh, which tells me I'm in the, <laughs> I'm in the right zone. Uh, like we need to, we need to help, help people study the Bible better, more efficiently. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm working on. So, uh, Tim, why don't you give us a quick preview of the Isaiah 50 content here? The, I, uh, let's see here. I don't know how much I really want to say because the way I introduce this, it's like getting them to think and kind of asking them questions, but it's connected to the whole idea of light and revelation. When God tells you what to do, uh, you need to just do it, even though you may not understand, or you may want additional revelation and the purpose, or I'm sorry, and the pursuit of that additional revelation can be sinful. Uh, so I would enc encourage you just to think through this idea of light, revelation, darkness. It's been a theme. Uh, go back to Isaiah 2 and 8 and then come into this one in Isaiah 50. Uh, and I pray that uh, I pray that you're blessed. Let's have a conversation about light. So uh, I started all the way back in August with Abraham and how Abraham walked by faith and trusted the Lord, not knowing where he was going to go, uh, where the promised land was at. Uh, and then we moved into Psalm chapter 1, and we discussed how God reveals information to us through his word, his word which we should be constantly consuming. Uh, then we went to Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 8, and we talked about the metaphor of light and how God provides light on the path on how we should live our lives. But God doesn't reveal everything, just like what we saw with Abram. Abram was told, go, and he's not told where. Well, what happens when we don't want to just go? We want to know where. In fact, we refuse to go unless we know where. So we're going to go to Isaiah 50 today, and we're going to talk through this idea of light, seeking light, seeking revelation concerning how to get on the right path or stay on the right path or to travel the right path. So Isaiah chapter 50, I'm going to just read through this passage. Um, Isaiah 50, starting in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? There's our key word, light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. Then this you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. In Isaiah, we have a series of servant songs. 
Isaiah 42 has the first servant song, Isaiah 49, the second, and Isaiah 50, the third. Isaiah 53 is the most well-known servant song, and there's a debatable servant song in Isaiah 62. Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50 the, the third servant song, uh, describes the servant and he is the, 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 he is the one that is the me in this text. And as we work through this, guys, I'm going to be asking you some questions. I actually want us to think through this passage because it builds up to this point of a light. And, and the light that it's referring to here has to do with darkness and how actually sometimes we're walking in darkness. And so how do we handle this when, when we're like Abraham and God says, go, but he doesn't tell us where? And then, well, I want to know. I'm not going to go until I know where. What would God call that? Okay, so Isaiah 50 and verse 4. Let's take a look at this passage. It states, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. When you think of the word learned, what are you guys thinking of? Smarty pants, people who've been educated or trained. Correct. So now in an Old Testament kind of a context, what kind of a person would that be? Huh. Go with wise. Correct. Okay. So yes. when we're thinking of the learned, the well educated individual, we're in the context of the sapiential literature. This is Proverbs, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, that kind of stuff. So this person has the tongue of the learned. And so then it states so that he knows how to speak at the right time. Now notice the next phrase. He awakens in the morning. In the morning, he awakens. In fact, the, the wording here in the Hebrew is literally... He awakens in the morning, then in the morning he awakens. Because it's so redundant, some people think that there was some dithography, there was a repetition, an error by a copyist. I don't think so. I think this is actually a chiasm in this verse, and it's focusing on this one point. When you think of he awakens in the morning, in the morning he awakens my ear, what is that talking about? What, is that, what does that sound like? Awakening in the morning, an ear to hear oh. like the learned. Oh, okay. To hear like the learned is the rest of the sentence. Well, in the morning, like there's noises that wake you up. It's okay. like an alarm clock, like birds and stuff. But so I don't he, know if that's what he's getting. But he's at. awakening my ear hmm. to so, hear. So it's like kind of like the day and night meditation thing, like from Joshua. Um, like early, I'm listening to him. He's. Yeah, he's thinking about wisdom from the moment he wakes up. Okay, good. So he's, he's seeking the Lord. I would contend this is even one, uh, another text that illustrates how one should begin their day. Okay, drawing close to the Lord. Well, why is that? Because you're seeking that the Lord would awaken your ear so that you would know how to live according to the learned. In fact, the word that is used here to hear like the learned, the word there for hearing is the the word for obeying. It's the Shema. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, so, so the Lord is revealing in the morning, awakening his ear, revealing to him, hey, guess what? This is what you're supposed to do. So there's a path that the servant is supposed to walk on. Are we following here? And, and whatever that path is requires the obedience of the servant that he walks and lives as the learned. So according to like the sapiential wisdom literature. So in other words, this is like Psalm 1. He's consuming the law of the Lord. He's meditating on it day and night. And so therefore he knows how to live his life. He knows how to walk on the path because he has the light before him. 
How are we doing? Good. Okay. I think I'm following. Yeah. All right. So now in the beginning of verse five, the versification in the English Bible, I think is an error. You have the end of the chiasm because the beginning of verse five, the Lord God has opened my ear corresponds to the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned at the beginning of verse four, and it closes the chiasm. Okay. So verses four and then 5a is part of the chiasm. Now, the reason that gets important is because of this next line. What does it state in the next line? What does it state in verse 5? Well, he wasn't rebellious, and ah. he did not turn backwards. Ah. So what is the temptation when God says, guess what? This is what I have told you to do. I have awakened your ear, and I have told you this is the path that you have to walk on, and you don't want to walk on it. The temptation is to pull a Jonah. Pull a Jonah, and you rebel. And that's what it is. That is what this is. This is, would be rebellion. Now, think through this as far as a servant song is concerned. Who is the servant? Jesus. Jesus is the servant. What is and the path that God tells him to walk on? Crucifixion. The crucifixion. And verse 6 makes that very clear. Very clear. Okay. You want to read verse 6 for us, Charlie? I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Okay, that's I good. hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Okay, so clearly a reference to the path. Now, did Jesus know that this was the path that he was supposed to walk on? I mean, I think so, yeah. <laughs> it states it even here in, yeah. the, in the servant song. We don't even need to go to the New Testament because he's awakened his ear in the, in the verse 4. He, God tells him, guess what? This is your path. Listeners, when Tim says we didn't even need the Old Testament, it was like his face glowed. <laughs> so Jesus. That was such a great boyish giggle. Like uh, that that needs to be like a sound bite that we play multiple times. Like that was such a great laugh right there. So the Lord Doesn't awakens even face him, just keeps running and going. Okay. The servant's ear. And he says, this is the way that you need to go. This is the path you need to walk on. And what is the temptation? I don't want to go on that path. In fact, when you think through the Garden of Gethsemane, what was the Garden of Gethsemane like? What did Jesus do? Man, he pleaded. I think we'd underestimate his plea, but mm -hmm. he really did honestly plea with the Father if there's any other way. Please. Let this cup pass he honest like this was not like a fake trial to him. no it was a real trial he did not want to go to the cross but if he refused to go to the cross what would that have been it would have been the rebellion now charlie's been doing this discipleship series and i think that this greatly illustrates the struggle that you might even be going through when god asks you to do something and you don't want to do it. Recognition, repentance, and Jesus didn't have to repent, but then responding. And that response is in a response of obedience, and you obey. And what does Jesus do here? He obeys. The, the, um, the author of Hebrews refers to this. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, this is Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears 
to him who is able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Yeah, so I don't know if we'll ever get to this point in the discipleship series. I'm still muted. I don't know if we're going to get to this in the discipleship series, but actually talking about discipleship in the context of, of Christ is actually really helpful. And so is it always, every time I have a trial, is it always because I'm wrong? Well, Christ is actually an example where that's not the case. He is sinless. So the purpose of what God is leading him through is not to reveal sin in his heart because it doesn't exist. But how does Christ know what we go through and relate to us? He still has human desires and he still has to order them properly and obey the correct ones. Mm -hmm. Not that he has a sinful or wrong desire, Mm -hmm. but if his desire to not be crucified if it was even possible for that to supersede his desire to obey, well, then we would have a, a an issue. And what is he grappling with? He has a desire that he has to obey, and that desire just doesn't poof away for him. Right. The whole way, like in, that's very vivid imagery in verse six, having his beard plucked out. Like, how many of you want that to happen? You know, like how think about how painful that would be. And it's like, at what point are you going to give in? You know, and that's a physical thing that's kind of gives us a reaction, but our desires are like that. Like it's mm-hmm. a very strong pull. Mm-hmm. And I get, I, I don't know if this is necessarily the time to talk about it, but uh, there is a category of suffering that is unjust suffering. Like you didn't do anything wrong. And in those moments, guess what you still need to do? You still need to obey and love properly. Right. And Jesus like is your example. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's right. And so connecting even this whole thing to the emotions and uh, Charlie's discussion on discipleship a couple of weeks ago. Okay, there's nothing that feels good about any of this, but it's right. And to not go through it would be rebellion. So what do we, so, so here we have the servant and he, he goes on this path. He does not rebel. He allows his body to be struck, he allows his his beard to be to be uh, um, ripped out, and he does not hurt, hide his face. Isn't that interesting? Because when somebody is spitting at you, when they're beating you, when they're plucking out your beard, what what is the natural response? To cower, to try to get away from it, but the servant doesn't do that. He just lets them, and, and that's why I really. You know, people kind of make these suppositions about Jesus and his crucifixion, but he didn't make it to the place where he was supposed to be crucified because he was beaten so badly. He had to have assistance to get the cross to the place of crucifixion. And I I really think it was because when somebody is defiant like this, where the, the, the abuse doesn't have a, an effect on the individual, what would that have caused the Roman guards to do even more? I really think that it was an extreme, extreme beating because he doesn't even hide his face. Uh, and, and as they seek to humiliate him, that's what we have at the end of verse six, 
What does he then rely upon in verse 7? It states in verse 7, the Lord God will help me. Okay, so when you go through a trial, and if it's like a, a valley, and it's really dark, and it's really bad, what does God want you to do? To trust in him. He will be the one that will help you. And here the servant is helped by the Lord. The verse continues in verse 7, Therefore, I will not be ashamed. Okay, what are they trying to do to him in verse 6? All of their things they're doing. What are they doing? Humiliating. They're trying to humiliate him. him. And this is exactly what our world does even today. We're afraid of man. We don't want to be humiliated before man. Instead, what does the servant provide an example for us? I don't give a rip what you think. As long as I am not ashamed before God, then you can do whatever you want. And that's his approach here in verse 6 and in verse 7. Therefore, I will not be ashamed. And then continuing in verse 7, Therefore, I set my face like a flint. Look at that steadfastness, this rock. Okay, he's not going to change. He's just going to keep going through it. And whatever they do doesn't matter. They can do whatever they want to him because he is accountable before God and God alone. This provides a striking example also of what it means to fear God as opposed to fearing man. I go to this text to illustrate what the fear of the Lord truly is. It's connected to shame. You're not embarrassed before God, so you can be shamed to whatever degree before people. Let them make fun of you. It doesn't matter because the Lord is the one that helps you. And before him, you will not be ashamed. We see that repeated in verse 7. It states at the very end of verse 7, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And if you go through a trial, and if the world is trying to ridicule you, mock you for your holiness, for your whatever it might be, okay, for how you endure a trial, or for how you take abuse by somebody that's a boss and they just are a jerk towards you, okay? Remember 2 Peter 3, okay? This is how you've given a a defense to those who are before you, how you handle suffering, okay? You are not ashamed before them. They can do whatever you want. They want. They can do whatever they want to you, because you will not be ashamed before God. So then, continuing into verse eight, we get this judicial terminology. Near is the one who justifies me. Who will contend with me? This is like judge kind of terminology. Think through the servant. Think through the Messiah as he stands before earthly judges. What are they doing? They have the power. And what power do they have? They have the power to say, you are right. But they're contending with him. And the temptation in that kind of a a situation is the fear of man. And you want to know, and you want to please, and you want to be affirmed by people. You You want to be considered just. You want to be considered right. That's the terminology that's here in verse 8. But what does the sermon, what does the sermon state? Near is the one who, justi- who justifies me, who will contend with me. 
let us stand together. Look at that. It's like this taunt (laughs) to think through Jesus in that situation. Bring it. Let us stand together. It recalls the high priest and, and they're like, who are you? Are you the son of God? And, and, and Jesus, what does he say? I, uh, I should have looked it up, but it's like, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. It's like this judge that has the power of life and death is, is over Jesus is right before him. And Jesus is like, you've got nothing because you're going to be judged before the son of man one day. So keeping this eternal perspective, thinking through even what uh, Thinkling Stearns was talking about last week, about pleasing God and not pleasing man, who will justify you? Who will judge you? Let's stand together. Okay, verse 9. As you go through a trial like this, though, however, the, the trouble, the problem, the, the issue is that you have to go through it. So you have to remember who it is that's going to be there with you through it. And the servant recalls this point twice. Back in verse 7, he says, the Lord God will help me. Then in verse 9, he says, the Lord God will help me. He says it again. The Lord empowers and helps. See, this is what true Christianity is all about. True Christianity isn't knowing how to walk on the path or to get through the path. True Christianity is having faith. It's believing in the God who will get you through the trial, who will step your feet on the right path and trusting in him as you walk through that trial. The Lord God will help me. Who is he who will judge me? I love this. this, this uh, the word here is like to make, to, uh, to make me wicked. <laughs> if God's helping you, the world, that's what they do, by the way, they say, guess what? What you're doing is wrong. And they accuse us of doing wrong all the time. That's what they're accusing Jesus of doing. You know, they're accusing him of doing something wrong. You don't give a rip. They can tell you that you're doing wrong all the time, every day of the week, because the one who justifies you is the Lord. He's the one that'll help you. Then this last line of verse nine, it talks about how all of them, they grow old like a garment and the moth consumes them. And when you're tempted to be fearful of that person, whether it's a boss or a judge or whoever it might be, remember, what are they? They're a breath. Watch them breathe. That is the essence of an individual. That's all they are, is a breath. They will grow old and they will die. And just like a garment is consumed by moths, they're nothing. So remembering who man is and then who God is. Now we're getting into the point that I really wanted to get to. I know this is kind of horrendous long introduction to the light. But in verse 10 and 11, we get the light terminology. Who among you fears the Lord? The servant fears the Lord. Who obeys the voice of his servant? That is the essence of fearing the Lord. You obey. Guess what happened to the servant? God says, this is the path you have to walk on. Are you going to rebel? Are you going to obey? The next line, who walks in darkness? Are you okay to walk in darkness? Or will you demand additional light? Are you content 
to take a step of faith, like Abram, and go to a land that you don't know where it is, to leave everything that God has given you, to, to take up, pick up roots, and to go. You're like, I don't know where this is going, but I know this is where God wants me to go. And then you walk in darkness. Friend, this is the essence of the Christian life. The Christian life is about belief. And if you have never believed in Jesus, if you have never placed your faith in him, I would encourage you to do that even now. And you might be going through a valley and maybe God's using that valley and that difficult situation so that you might see that you need to simply believe. And I would encourage you to just open up the word of God, meditate on this text and place your faith in Jesus. Trust in him and him alone. The Lord God has already paid the penalty for your sin by sending Jesus to the cross to go on this difficult path. He had to go on this path so that your sins could be forgiven. Trust in him and walk the Christian walk, the walk of faith. Who walks in darkness? And there is no light in him. That's what it says in verse 10. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. That's the response. That's the Christian life. You trust. You walk in faith and you trust. Let him trust. Let him wait on his God. Now the other response comes in verse 11, and this is what too often we do. Look, all of you who kindle a light. Look at that. They're, they're creating a light. You see, we don't like walking in darkness. We want to know. Well, what is knowing attributed to? Rebellion. All you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks. Guess what God lets you do? If you're not satisfied with the light that God provides, he will let you walk in that light. Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. That's not faith. That's not belief. That's rebellion. And what does God say about rebellion at the end of verse 11? This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the liberty of the Christian life. If you believe in God, you trust him to help you, to sustain you, to guide and direct you, then guess what? You're free. There's no anxiety. There's no concerns. There's freedom. Because guess what? You know God's going to provide for you. You know that he's going to care for you. And this is why the Christian can have joy and peace through trials, like what Thinkling Carter was talking about a couple of weeks ago when he was working through Galatians 5. You believe, you have faith, and you just walk in darkness. But what does the unbeliever do? They don't believe. They don't trust the Lord. They don't believe that the Lord can help them. So they have to help themselves. They have to make a light for themselves. Thus, they get anxious. They struggle with anxiety and stress and all these pressures. Why? Because they don't believe and they don't trust the Lord to help them. So they have to do it themselves. This isn't a good life. The Christian life is a life of freedom. It's a good life. And I would encourage you, if you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior, to do that today. Hand your carry, your, your cares and your worries over to the Lord and trust Him. He will help you. He will sustain you. He will let you walk 
or he will guide you on that path. It may get dark at time. Trust him. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings podcast.